Welcome to the Hardwood Hustle powered by PGC Basketball. We believe in the value of a coach. We're here to educate, empower, and encourage you to lead like never before. This week, TJ and Sam discuss X's and O's from this year's NCAA men's and women's Final Four matchups. There's always a lot to learn from watching the systems and strategies of teams who are winning at the highest level. And we also know coaches have to be able to apply learnings appropriately. Listen today and start thinking about what's going to help you win next season. Before we start, a quick word from PGC Basketball. If you want to have the smartest players on the court next season, there's no other place for them to be this summer than PGC Camp. Don't settle for bad decision-making, unnecessary turnovers, and lack of leadership any longer. A week at a point guard college, scoring college, or playmaker college camp for two to three of your players may be the difference between a mediocre season and a winning the championship. And if you want to take your own basketball IQ and coaching to a whole new level, join over 8,000 coaches who have attended a week at PGC. Youth coaches to professional coaches have called a week at PGC the best coaching clinic they've ever attended. So go to pgcbasketball.com to find a camp today. Coaches, welcome. What wins games, offense or defense? What wins tournaments? We just got done watching some March Madness, and there's a lot of great learnings. And so we want to go over and talk about some of the many learnings we got from watching the men and women's NCAA tournament this year. And so we got some good debates, some good topics to cover here. So hopefully it'll improve you as a coach, as I know that March Madness improved me as a coach. Spent a lot of time watching games, trying to get better. Sam, what we got? Yeah, TJ, this this March Madness was a lot of fun. I think, it, number one, it was fun just because we had it this year coming off COVID. And, um, you know, the national championship game was an interesting dynamic. You had the number one – I'm talking about the men's first. We'll get into the women's as well. But you had Baylor, TJ. They were the number one three-point shooting team in the country. Gonzaga was the number one scoring team and the number one just field goal percentage overall. And I don't know that in the history of, of Division One basketball has that ever happened. You know, we a lot of we see a lot of T-shirts that say defense wins championships, <laughs> but does it really, or do you need offense? And it's an interesting debate and discussion. So, you know, watching that Zaga and Baylor game, TJ, what were some of your takeaways um, from the national championship and just Final Four overall? Yeah, you know, really interesting. I think a lot of times the team that wins the championship or the ones that get there to the Final Four are often underrated on the other side of the ball. You know, so when I look back to Virginia, who was the last winner before this, you know, people talked about defense, defense, defense. But if I'm not mistaken, I think Virginia shot over 50% from the field offensively. But everyone just recognizes the low score and the defense and all that. So they were really efficient offensively as well. And then when you look at these two teams right here, you know, particularly Baylor that won it, I, I think Baylor was really good defensively. I think they got up in Gonzaga and took them out of everything they wanted to do. And, you know, that one guard, he, he he's, a, he's a nightmare. And so I think across the board um, – that both teams, even Gonzaga was a, a good defensive basketball team. And I think it was underrated that both, including Virginia the year that like they're pretty balanced teams, like they're good on offense and they're good on defense. Now we can take another team. We can dive into this a little bit later. I don't think Houston was that good on offense, but I think they were a phenomenal defensive team. And I think it was good enough to get them as far as they needed to go. 
but I don't think they can win a championship like that. I think the teams over the past I've seen have some semblance of balance. They, they might be, they might be 60, 40 offense, defense, or 60, 40 defense offense, but they're, they're competent in the other one. Now that I'm not going to say Houston's incompetent, but I think they're more like an 80, 20 team. Like they're really good defensively and they do some okay things offensively, but they really hang their hat on the defensive end and they're going to win a lot of games like that. I'm just not sure they can win a championship like that. Well, I agree. You know, Houston TJ was the number one field goal percentage defense in the country. And then if you just look at defensive rating metrics, they were number six. And I agree, they they just were nasty. They just compete, they fly around, they rebound like crazy. And I really I really thought this was Gonzaga. You know, Gonzaga's always been really good offensively. You know, me and you've even spent a lot of time studying Mark Few and and what he does offensively. But I thought this was their best defensive team. And in large part, they had good individual defenders in like Jalen Suggs. And I mean, I thought he's a terrific on-ball defender. He competes really well. But the other three teams, I did think significantly, Zaga, Gonzaga, UCLA, and Houston, I just thought they competed. Now, they didn't always – they didn't – outside of Houston, UCLA and um, Baylor don't measure out like elite on the defensive end. But I thought they compete really well. They have some elite individual defenders. And when you throw that on top of – a fluid and, and efficient offense, that's the combination. Hey, you, you TJ, when me and you were talking, as y'all were making your run through the Sweet 16, the D2 National Tournament, you're talking about looking at, at a split line of like 50-40, you know, offensive efficiency and defense. Can you speak a little bit to what you found as you studied teams, you know, at y'all's D2 level? Yeah, well, I think it really applies to any level of basketball, like having a differential between your offense and defense. Now, one of the things that can be really misleading is, you know, if you take a particular team, and I'm not sure of Baylor's stats, but like they play a little bit faster paced offense, you know, and they're going to score a little bit more. And I, I think it's unlikely to see a team like them or Gonzaga hold teams under 40% from the field defensively because they're going to play at a pace where there's going to be some more scores and it's going to be up there, you know, where maybe they're shooting 53, 54, 55% from the field. And what's more, most important to me is the gap. You know, if Gonzaga is shooting 54% from the field offensively and they're holding people to 44, 45, that's a 10% differential. And that's huge. And so I don't think it necessarily means like our, our goal is kind of like 50 from the offense, 40 from the defense, like we're trying to hold people under 40 and score over 50. But if we were lethal offensively, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't mind shooting 54 and holding people to 45. And so I don't think it's necessarily the number of 40 and under 38 and under 50 and over. I just think the gap on your field goal offense and defense is a pretty good indicator. Like the team that won the D2 national championship, Northwest Missouri, you know, their defensive stats, I actually thought they were pretty good defensively, but I think they gave up like 44, 45 from the field but they also shot around 55 from the field. And that 10% gap right there, you know, that's enough to win you a ton of games. Yeah, you know, Gonzaga shot elite level this year. You know what they shot from the floor? 55%, 55%. I mean, just elite. And there wasn't a team within, I think, three percentage points. Um, Baylor shot 42% from three. So my question is, would you rather have elite offensive team 
or elite defensive team? You know, this is an interesting one. I, early in my career, I would have said an elite defensive team. And here's why. I honestly like just reflecting on it is I felt that that was attainable for me. I felt like I could coach defense and push people and get them to play hard enough that we could create a really good defensive team. Now, as we've gone down and worked on, you know, getting better, and I think we're more efficient offensively, and we shot around 50% this year. I think we were 48, 49. Um, we've had a couple of years where we were right there at 50. It, now that I feel more confident in that, I think, it's, I think it's easier to be a good offensive team and hopefully teach defense to be that, you know, still that gap of 8 to 10% there because it's harder to take a great defensive team usually you you know you have these whatever it is that makes you a great defensive team and I think stretching them into being great offensively is harder I'd rather take a great offensive team and stretch them into being great defensively than have the challenge of taking a great defensive team and stretching them to be in a great offensive team yeah, no doubt. So you then you lean definitely towards you, you will do. Does that reflect in how you practice your team? And do you spend more time uh, proportionally on offense than you do on defense? Well, I you know, here's what I think really matters is skill. And so the one thing that's left out, what do you work on more offense or defense? The one thing we've trended to towards more in our last few years of basketball is more skill development late in the season. And we've got to keep making better players all the time. I, I think skill wins. Like when you look at Baylor and you look at Gonzaga, they were really skilled basketball teams. And in order to make your offense better, you have to have players that can do multiple things at different positions. And so I think the, the idea of developing players, you know, like we talk about in key five, developing their skills, their reads, their mental, you know, all of that stuff that goes into it. I think that also trickles over to the defensive end. If they have a player that can make good offensive reads, they typically can make decent defensive reads. If you have a player that's mentally locked in on the offensive end, you can get him mentally locked in on the defensive end. And so, you know, I, I think that, you know, offense or defense, you know, we'll choose in particular, I think because you put skill development in the offensive side of the ball, that's one place we've trended towards a lot more in the last few years of to continue to develop players throughout the year. Yeah, I like that. And I, I tend to, over the last few years, have a couple of thoughts, which is, you know, you want to create an offense that's really hard to guard, obviously, and, and have good players and then just compete on the defensive end. And, and the way you bring it to life, or that I found, and I think not only I enjoy coaching it more, I think players enjoy um, playing in it is doing a lot of cross train. So a lot of coaches will go, okay, we're going to do a defensive segment. So they do a lot of defensive drills and then there's no attention on offense. Well, why not cross train it and work on both? And I think, I think more coaches in, in the basketball world is trending towards, you know, games approach or cross training offense and defense um, and it's, yeah, I think it's just a lot more fun, uh, for players. Yeah, I, I agree and disagree. And here's why, like, I agree that we need to cross train everything that we do in the basketball. I agree that we need to play games to make decisions. I also do think there is value for a player knowing what's going to win. You know what I mean? Like if, if at the end of the day, you know, three stops in a row on the defensive end is what we are focused on. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think sometimes we don't give that enough credence. Like, 
to put all of your energy and attention to being great defensively. Even, you know, the people on the sideline are cheering for the defense. Like everybody's pulling that direction. I do think there is still value in that of everybody feeling or seeing something as really, really important to happen for your team. So I, I, I agree that we need to cross train. I agree that we need to get to the games approach, but I also think there's a place and a time for clarity on what we're trying to get better at. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I want, I want to go back to your, your stat earlier and, and just share back to Gonzaga and Baylor. So the splits TJ for Gonzaga are 55. They shot from the field and then they shot for or they gave up 42, which is pretty good, right? That's a 13 percentage point difference, which is probably why they they made the run they did. And then interestingly, Baylor shot 48% from the field and gave up 43. So that's that's only a five percentage point difference. Um, I would have thought, would you have thought it had been higher there? You know, I think this has been pretty true. Like if you're over 10% you're going to win a ton of games, you know? And then when you look at something like 48, 43, first of all, if they wouldn't gone through that COVID spell where they were out 20 days, I think their gap might've been more like 50, 42. It would have been more like an eight point gap. I mean, they came back from that 20 day layoff and had about three or four games where it just wasn't close to who they were before the layoff. And I think that would have changed things a little bit. Um, and I also think the other thing is playing in the conference they play in, it's going to be a little bit harder. Like, I mean, you know, when you look at the, the separation Gonzaga has, you know, there are some teams in that league where they were winning games 30 and 35 and, you know, whatever, speak to how good they were. But at the same time, if you're Baylor, you're not going to go through that league and get many 25, 30 point wins. No doubt. And the, I think the X factor here is that I didn't share when I just shared those stats was, the split from three was even more significant, though. Baylor shot 41%, almost 42, and they only gave up 32. So that's almost a 10-10 split, whereas Zaga's three was they, they shot 37 and they gave up 33. So that X factor, when you, when you put four guys like Baylor did oftentimes, TJ, that can all shoot the three, I mean, you're putting a tremendous amount of tension on defense. It is hard to guard when you can spread them out and they run little ball screen and, and pick and roll action and you can't tag that roll because if you do, they're going to just kick and hit the three. I mean, you become really hard to guard. And that that's where the game has really taken off, I think, in the last 10 years, shooting the three when you put four shooters out there. Yeah, I think so, too. And I, I think that, you know, watching these games, both in men and women's tournaments, I, I think there was a lot of really good things, a lot of little things that people wouldn't have noticed. So, you know, when you think about like Gonzaga and the pace of their offense, you know, I think Baylor did a great job of getting in the bubble defensively and taking away Gonzaga's rhythm. And I think they're the, really the first team all year that could take away Gonzaga's rhythm. And that had a lot to do with that guard, those two guards on defense. And one, I think, was just elite defensively. But they were able to just get in there and, and take them out of, of what they wanted to do for the most part. And I think you know, when you have a skilled play player like Timmy at the post play, right, there's so many things you can do with him. I mean, they had him short roll. They had him roll all the way. They had him slip. They had him do all kinds of things. And it wasn't really at a really fast pace. It was more of at a read pace. 
And then you flip it over to the other side of Baylor, and they had post players that were big, long, athletic, but I wouldn't consider them super skilled, right? But what did Baylor do? Well, Baylor's post player sprinted to screens harder than any player I saw in the entire tournament. And so Baylor did a great job of taking his lack of skill and turning his effort into something that put pressure on Gonzaga's defense and any defense that they that they came up against. And so for coaches, if I'm watching this game, you know, I'm learning from both of those. Like when you got a post player like Timmy, you want him to be able to make reads and he will put the defense in pressure. When you have a post player like Baylor, he can't he can't go slow because there's too much reaction time there. He has to go and rely on his effort, speed, and pace to put pressure on the defense. And so both of them did a great adjustment. Even going back to UCLA, you know, people kind of underestimated this. Like UCLA did a phenomenal job of playing the game at the pace that they needed to play to beat people and have a chance to almost play in the national championship game. And they, they controlled the pace of the game and then got the players with the, the right players, the ball in the right situations with the right amount of space. So it was a different way. It wasn't like some great team fluid offense like Gonzaga. They relied on like five, six guys in UCLA. They were going to slow the pace. And at the end of the play, one of three guys was going to get the ball in their in their spot, and they were going to go make a play for the for for them. And so it wasn't as fun offensively to watch as Gonzaga, but it was also great coaching by UCLA to control the pace of the game and make sure the possession ended with the right person having the ball. Yeah, and UCLA that's what UCLA stood out to me because they did. I thought they they grinded on you. They when you watch them play, they just had a toughness to them. And I'm, I'm going back to this these splits that we keep talking about that you referenced earlier. I mean, their season splits were 46-44 on field goal percentage. They shot 46. They gave up 44. But in college basketball, you can it's a one-game tournament each night. So for 40 minutes, you just got to be better than the next team. Whereas you don't see an NBA, you don't see an eight seed run through and make it to the to the finals because it's a series in a one-game tournament you know, anything can happen. Yeah. I, I think the best coach tournament was by UCLA. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it allowed them to find a way from one game to the next to be able to do that. Brad Stevens was always great at that, yeah. you know, to be able to find one game and get you to the next game. And I, I thought they did, a, a, I thought he did as good or better job of anybody of coaching the tournament. Yeah, I agree. And, and, you know, another thing I learned from March madness, cause I, I don't watch, I didn't watch this year a ton of women's basketball. I don't know if you caught any of the national championship game. And Lisa, you know, and I talked about this game. When I watched Arizona play uh, Stanford in the finals, it was a contrast. They they really struggled shooting the three, and I thought that really hurt them, whereas Baylor just stretched you out so much, as well as Gonzaga. They just put so much pressure on the defense you know, it just it, yeah, it just put so much pressure on the defense when you can shoot the three, and when you can't, you're making it so easy on the offense. When you play, TJ, when y'all go night in and night out in your league, do you do you typically go against a team with two, three, or four shooters that you're worrying about? I'm talking the top end of your league. You know, I would say the average is three. You know what I mean? Like, and 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 
occasionally it fluctuates. There's some with two, some with four, but I'd say it averages out at three. And there's no doubt that four is the number that's really, really hard to guard. And, and two is probably more guardable and three is in between like a good stretch there. You know, and, and I, I saw the same thing watching the Stanford and Arizona game, like breaking that down. I, I was really surprised. Um, first of all, I think Stanford had a great defensive plan, you know, and it wasn't honestly, it wasn't the prettiest game to watch. You know, it, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't like a, a, a whole bunch of skill. And this isn't a knock like a lot of times it's easy to knock a game, but nobody knows all the things that go into it. By that time in the tournament, people know each other really well. They've played each other. It's really hard to have a great game with teams that have played each other a lot. And so when you look at Sanford and Arizona, you know, Stanford to me is a step slow defensively, but they're big and they're long and they're athletic, not athletic. They're big and they're long and somewhat athletic at different spots, but not every spot was really athletic. But I thought they did a great job of taking away Arizona's strengths and making them shoot shots they wanted them to shoot. So they were, it seemed like a really cerebral group of, of, of young ladies. Like they were always in the right spot. They were taking away, pressuring where they needed to pressure and giving ground where they needed to give ground. And Arizona could never get in a rhythm because I thought that Stanford's defensive plan was really, really good. No doubt. Yeah, I did. I agree hundred percent with that. You know, what happens usually when you, when you watch March madness is then you have a lot of copycat. And, and we always coach it and not, I say that not a critical or negative way, but we watch somebody always say this. You remember what happened after 2003 when Syracuse and Carmelo, they won the national championship. Everybody comes out and wants to run the matchup zone. But when you don't have, you know, three guys that are six, eight or bigger with that length, it doesn't look as good in your in your high school practice with three, six, two post players. What what are some things you took away watching the different levels, women's, men's, different D1, D2, that you took away and said, you know what, I need to reevaluate how we run our program. Could we make some tweaks to, to bring out some things I really like? Yeah, well, the first thing that I noticed, I mean, if we're being really, really honest about it and, and not just trying to like steal things because we like them, like we need to steal things because they can make our team better. And when I look at the eight teams, the four women, the four men's like you got to look, Houston is way different than Gonzaga. I mean, you look at those styles in there. Like I think Baylor and Gonzaga were pretty similar. Like they, they not, I mean, they do different things and there was definitely differences in them, but the way UCLA wanted to play the game and the way Houston wanted to play the game, there was really three and a half different styles there in the final four, you know, like there was, there was, a drastic difference and even watching you know UConn play and Stanford play I think they play the game really differently and, and, and the women's side of the game so what you need to do is when you're watching all of this basketball unfold is what really can I apply to my team the common thread of the final four men and women's teams that I saw they maximized their team's potential they put their team in a situation to win and I think the really good coaches are the ones that can adapt, not just say, you know what, I love Arizona's ball screen. You know what, I love Baylor's this. I love UConn's this. I love Gonzaga's this. And so they just put it in there because they love it. But does that really, really fit your team? You know, when I think about uh, Calvin, uh, Calvin Sampson and them making the final four, 
you know, first of all, like, well, they didn't win it because they didn't have enough offense. You could also look at it the other way and say, you know what, you just took Houston to a final four, which is not the easiest place to go to a final four from. And so he sold out to being great at one thing, which gave them a shot. And if he probably sold out to three or four different things, he might not have had a shot to be in the final four. So you've got to give respect to that and what he did. And I think for coaches, we need to take things that can really apply to our team. Like you might need to be like Houston next year to give your team a chance, right? You might need to be positioned in the right spot, like Stanford women to give your team a chance next year, or you might just be really skilled and you need to play the game like Gonzaga and the ball always moves and open people. You, you might be like that. And so, I think stealing the appropriate stuff is probably the most important thing for coaches to do is, is does this really fit, you know, my personnel and my team and will this help us get better? Hey guys, let's take a quick halftime break. In your last season, do you know what hurt your team on defense the most? Do you know what you were most vulnerable to where you gave up the most points? What did the most damage to you? Was it, paint drives? Was it offensive rebounding? Was it transition defense? Was it lack of help the helper or or rotational defense, that second and third effort? What caused your team the most problems? Before you can provide solutions to a problem, you have to know the problem. So coaches, go back, watch the film, get clear data where there's no doubt, no debate as to what you need to fix in your team defense, and then start addressing it, start showing it on film to get your team, get your program ready for next year. This is brought to you by our good friends at shootaway.com, makers of the gun. They've helped thousands of programs all across the globe at all levels become better shooters. Better shooters equals better offense. Better offense wins more games. Win more games, you have more fun. Be sure to check out shootaway.com, get more details. Now, let's get back to the show. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, yeah, we we can't mimic what other teams have talent-wise, and especially the high school coach listening. You know, these college coaches get to go recruit and build their system around the players and they go find the players that fit their system. Whereas good high school coaches, they have to oftentimes adapt their system to their players. And, you know, I want to go back. I I was the interesting thing about the Stanford and Gonzaga, you know, we talked about 55, 42, you know what Stanford split was 46, 33. They're the number two defensive team in the country. They gave up 33% from the field. And which I, doesn't surprise me. I had no idea about that number, but watching them play Arizona, like Arizona did not get the shots they wanted for almost 40 minutes, you know, and it wasn't pretty, like I said, but it's usually not pretty when you're holding people to 35% from the field. You know, with March Madness, it's a great time to just, you know, enjoy basketball, but also – Take take the pieces. Who who does your team mimic and resemble the most? Like you said, TJ, maybe you don't have um, a lot of good skilled offensive players. Maybe you do need to spend a lot of time on your player development, like you said, late in the season. But if you don't, then you know running a spread offense and shooting a bunch of threes may not be your ticket. It may be making the game ugly and defending an offensive rebounding like crazy, like a Houston does. And I think that's the big big takeaway for me and you know as coaches listen that I would want to you know share with them is just 
find what your team's strengths are, find, you know, as you watch, when you watch March Madness, then, then try to apply that to what fits your team. Yeah. And, you know, to go like a little more in depth for coaches, like specifically what, what could you do with your team? You know, I think about like West Virginia and Bob Huggins and in Houston and those teams, to be honest with you, they typically come up a little bit short. And I think that you, you kind of even saw if you watch West Virginia kind of make an adjustment this year and they had more shooters on the floor, which gave them a little bit more of a chance. And I think that, you know, we all have to adjust over time to what gives our team a really good chance to do that. But if you were to contrast the styles in the men's final four, you know, do you have a high skill level team? If you have a very high skill level team, you might want to be looking at what Gonzaga is doing, you know? If you have a team that's going to struggle to score, you might want to watch some more of, of Houston and see if you can create that. Now, if you don't think you have Houston-type players, which most people don't, but I'm saying if you can't create that, you might want to look at UCLA, where when I look at UCLA, we're going to be adequate on the defensive end. We're going to make the pace slow a little bit so you get frustrated with the amount of time you're playing defense. And then we're going to try and make sure, you know, early in our offense, there might be opportunities for players to score in different places. But at the end of the possession, we're definitely going to have our best players in their spots to get a shot. You can look at a style like that because you can't play that pace with other people and you can't guard people. And so I think that you you can look at all those different styles. And I think Baylor probably falls into the category of, you know, a little bit of, of balance there. Like, you know, we're going to play pretty fast and we're going to shoot the three and then we're going to guard you in the half court. We're okay playing up tempo. We're okay playing down tempo. But when you look at each one of those and try and just dissect why they were successful or go over to Stanford and say, look, maybe we're pretty big. I get this call all the time. Hey, I've got two bigs this year for the first time, or I've got to make Well, you got, look, that's, they're protecting the rim really, really well and making sure that that's a good team to look at if you think your style is playing percentages on the defensive end. So I think thinking about your personnel and then maybe going back and dissecting each one of those a little bit and saying, we could win the UCLA way. We could win the Houston way. And look, I know nobody has those players, but you can say this would be our best chance to win if we played this style of game. Going in, Last thing I'll say is going into our last game, easier said than done. We had a type of style we played when we lost in the Sweet 16. We needed to play – UCLA's game. Now, I knew that. Our coaching staff knew that. It's harder to get that across the players when you may have not played that style the entire year. You know, just a change for one game. We won, we won our first round game and our second round game playing loose and free and doing whatever, and guys really bought in that. I knew we couldn't do that in the last game. If those shots didn't fall, we were in a lot of trouble. But we had just won two games like that. So, you know, trying to encourage them to play a different style of basketball in the next game was a hard message to get across. But our chance to win that game was playing a UCLA style game, which, again, is easier said than done for coaches to translate that message um, over to players. Yeah, well, you just said something that triggered a thought. I was listening to J.J. Reddick's podcast a couple months ago, and he was talking about, um, I think he was talking with Matt Barnes. Maybe they were on Matt Barnes' podcast nonetheless talking about how they went in they, when they were with Orlando, Stan Van Gundy, they were going up in a, in a playoff run against, I forget the opponent, but he made a, a drastic change in their ball screen coverage because he felt like that was going to give them the best chance to win. Yet they had done this other ball screen all season long. 
And they were essentially saying they thought that was a bad adjustment by Stan in hindsight. And, but that, that's the, that's the challenge as a coach. Do you ride and die with what you got you there and just sell out to it? Or in these one game tournaments, what adjustment can you make that doesn't throw off your whole system? And, and that's a really tough decision for a coach. Um, going back to this, you got something on that? Well, I would say this, like your style of play. And I think this is important for coaches to hear, like the, the, the style of play that's going to have the best chance in March Madness or at the end of your tournament in high school in February or whatever is a team that can be somewhat adaptable and flexible. Like you can win different ways. Like if you can only win the game one way, you're going to come up against somebody that can beat you that way, you know? And so I think when you look at Gonzaga, they could win games different ways. You look at Baylor, they could win games different ways. It was harder for UCLA and Houston to win games different ways, even though they could win games, you know, so don't get me wrong. But I, what I think coaches need to focus on are – what will actually win games come tournament time. So not even your offense or your defense or your style of play, but I do think you have to have three to five things in your, you know, must haves in your pillars of who you are that will allow you to win in March. So I'll share those in a second, but go ahead. And I'm going to give those thoughts after you go. Well, I was just going to say, DJ, what, what in my, my truth here in 2021 and me and you may do a podcast five years from now, and, and I may completely disagree with what I'm about to say, but where I land on is this. As you watch March Madness, as we study the game, uh, does offense win championship or defense? Both. And I know that's that's an easy out, but I'm saying I think you got to be good at both. And I think if you, depending on your personnel, you may be able to become elite at one year in and year out, but that would depend on personnel. And so I want us to be a good offensive team that can score in transition and score in the half court defense on a team that can really compete and make you take tough shots. And then there's some tried and true principles that I think every great team has, which is they have a connectedness. They play together. They have they they have a when you watch them out there, they're they're bonded. They're they're playing together. It's not individualistic. And those are, I think, tried and true formulas that will stand the test of time. And, and we are, the game has changed so much. I said it earlier, but I, we're in a, we're a game where we shoot a ton of threes. I'm interested to see, will it swing back in another trend um, in the coming years, or are we going to see this spread it out flow, shoot a ton of threes, work off the bounce that, uh, that we live in now. So that, that's, that's my biggest takeaways and where I land as kind of a, a truth in today's game. Yeah. You know, I think we've seen this trend in football. You know, I don't know if it'll ever go back, but I, I alluded to it a few times when, you know, Nick Saban said, you know, when I grew up coaching football, it was control the football, run it, occasionally go play action and sit and, and defend. And he said that doesn't win anymore in college football. The teams have gotten too good and too smart. And I feel that same thing in basketball. Like, I think we're a pretty good defensive team. But when we come up against a really good offensive coach, I think it's advantage offense over defense. I think it's just one of those things where they make you pay even when you play good defense. And so I think it's trending towards that offensive way of, of playing. But here's the final thing that I that I wanted to say and, and add, and, and you can finish up any thoughts. And But I think that the 
like we talked about earlier, it's not really important to me whether you play Stanford style, Arizona style, UCLA style, um, Baylor, Gonzaga. I, I don't think that's the most important thing. I think the most important thing is the separation and what wins and loses. So like when we look at field goal percentage offense and defense, you know, if you're going to shoot 52 and hold people to 43, like I think that's fine. If you're going to shoot 43 and hold people to 33, like, you know, Stanford did, you're, you're going to be fine, right? Like you're going to have to find that separation. I also think that the rebounding margin, right? Like we can look at all those field goal percentages, but if, you know, you're getting beat on the glass night in and night out, like that's going to be something, no matter what style you play, whether you're getting 60 rebounds a night or getting 30 rebounds a night, what really matters is the separation, the percentage of offensive rebounds you get on, on your misses and, and the percentage you give up on, on their misses that matters. So I don't care how you win that. You just have to find a way to win that. I think the turnover battle, right? Like, I don't care if you turn people over 20 times a game, you know, as long as you're turning it over 15, you're winning it by five. But if same thing, if if you turn it over five a game, but you only create 10, you're still winning it by five. The fouls, you know what I mean? Like if you're putting people on the line, they're getting to the foul line, they're shooting 26 free throws a game and you're shooting 12 free throws a game. That's a huge margin to overcome. But, you know, if you're only shooting, you know, 12 free throws a game, but you're giving up 14 free throws a game, well, you're close enough to live in that scenario. So when I look at like the fouls and I look at turnovers, field goal percentage, offense and defense, rebounding percentages right there, like when you look at those right there, if you could win like three or four of those, three out of the four or, or at least two out of the four, you're going to have a chance. If you're winning four out of four, you're going to have a really good chance no matter how you win it, whether you win it Stanford style or you win it Gonzaga style. I think the separation in those categories is what's really going to help you win games. Yeah, really good discussion, TJ. I, I enjoyed it. I think there's, there's more to be said on this. Um, I, the last point I would make just hearing what you said is, it's one thing to know these stats and say, hey, oh, I'd love to be a 10 split where we're shooting 48 and giving up 38 or a 50-40. But the real magic is how do you create that? How do you how do you build it out? We want to get a great shot, but what type of offense is going to give your team a great shot? We want to make them take tough shots, but how do you design a defense to do that? That's where the magic, the art of coaching comes in. Yeah, and here's here's what I'd give the last thing, and then I'll wrap us up here. I think for coaches, what you first thing you want to do is ask yourself, if we had to win by eight percent, what would be the optimal number with this team going in? So if you said, look, we have to win the field goal percentage offense defense by eight. Well, if I was to say I got a really crappy offensive team, we're gonna have a lot of trouble scoring the ball. Don't say you want to win at fifty-five to forty-seven. Right. So you look, we got a team that's going to struggle to score. Okay. What, what's, what could you shoot from the field? 45. So what does 8% separation look like there? I can shoot 45. We need to hold you to 37. And I do think it is helpful to pick a number to start your season. And you won't know exactly where it is, but you want to see, okay, look, we're at 43 offensively and we're at 40 defensively. How do I get one better on the offense and one better on the defense so we create a five-point separation after five games, you know? And then how do we continue to grow that margin? And you might have said 45-37, and it might end up 48-40, and 40, which is fine. 
But if you go in there saying we're going to we're going to go 55 and hold you to 47 and you don't have a team that can score, you're probably building a style of play that's not going to be possible for your team. But if you know that it's going to be on the other end, you want to build a style that will allow you to win that percentage right there. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think coaches, that's a good look for you to like start thinking about like what style of play do I need to play? What percentage could I actually do, you know, there and 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 have a, a plausible chance to get my team to build up that set build out that separation, I think is a good place for you to start. So hey Sam, appreciate you leading this conversation. I think it's uh, you know, a ton that we could learn from from March Madness and you know, just seeing it through the right filter and processing it well, rather than just taking that backdoor play that you love and thought, oh yeah, I'm gonna put this in my office next year you know that's one way of thinking but that's not really going to change you know what your team does and so yeah you got to think about big picture how did they get to the place they got to you got to know the why behind the what to really drain out what's going to make your team better so really enjoyed it hey that's sam allen i am tj rosine and we are the hardwood hustle thanks for tuning in to this episode of the hardwood hustle where we believe in the value of a coach And we also want to say a big thank you to all of our listeners who've shared our episodes with coaching friends or on social media and everyone who subscribed or followed us in your podcast app. We want to bring you content that educates, empowers, and encourages you as a coach. And spreading the word helps grow our coaching community. So thanks again from the Hardwood Hustle team. We appreciate all of our loyal listeners and we can't wait to be with you again next week.